So why is it always systematic review and meta-analysis? It's like I'm always sick and tired. They they always go together. (laughs) Welcome to Freely Filtered, the occasional podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC Journal Club. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. As Dr. Vardabedian says, we may be doctors on the internet, but we are not your doctors on the internet. This podcast discusses off-label indications and unlicensed medications. My name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as Kidney Boy. Tonight, I'm joined by just the dudes. Swapno. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. For this particular study, I do have a disclosure. I don't have any financial conflicts of interest, but I'm part of the Canadian uh, Association of Radiology Guidelines, uh, which have said, you know, these drugs are safe to be used in CKD. So consider, you know, that I have a bias even before we begin. Excellent. Matt? Hi everyone, I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University and I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. Thank you. Tonight we'll be talking about the systemic review and meta-analysis by Sean Woolen and Prasad Shankar et al. The study looked at the risk of nephrogenic systemic fibrosis in patients with CKD stage 4 and 5 exposed to type 2 gadolinium-based contrast agents. The study was published in JAM Internal Medicine. For many of our listeners, NSF is the wives' tale that attendings tell interns in the middle of the night to scare them. But back in 2006, it was real. It was really real. I remember the first inkling I had when a partner mentioned the new association between gadolinium and some sort of skin disease, what was then called nephrogenic fibrosing dermopathy. I thought, first contrast, and now MRI, what will we do? Really, MRI had become the escape hatch we adopted as nephrologists to escape the toxicity of iodinated contrast. I was reluctant to believe it, but when the FDA warning came out a few months later in June of 2006, we all stopped using gadolinium. At the same time, I was taking care of a few patients with thick, wood-like skin on their lower extremities. I remember when I finally connected the dots, how embarrassed I was that I had two separate cases of NFD under my care, but didn't realize it for months after the disease was recognized and I was actually talking about the disease and I just didn't connect the two. It was weird. Sometimes it's difficult to finally close that loop between what you read and what you see, especially when no one else had ever seen this before. Ultimately, we found five cases at our institution. Four of them died pretty miserable deaths with a lot of morbidity. The last one got a transplant and seemed to be getting a bit better, but he moved away. I don't think anybody's really reported people getting better from NSF. And so if anybody ever sees this transplant patient and he actually did get better, there's a case report waiting for them. In the FDA initial warning, they said to avoid gadolinium-based contrast agents in anyone with stage 4 or 5 CKD. But if you went through the case reports that they reported, every one of those patients was on dialysis at the time. The reason they extended it up to stage 4 and stage 5 is a few of the patients were on dialysis due to dialysis-dependent acute kidney injury and actually had baseline CKD stage 4 and 5. 
And I always thought this was showing an overabundance of caution because every one of the cases they had were on dialysis at the time that they received the gadolinium, but they were just trying to be super cautious. And I wonder, and we'll talk about this study today, but that caution in 2006 actually may result in being a little bit of irresponsibility when we look at this data today in 2020. Swap, why don't you discuss our methods? Sure, if I could add a few things. Uh, Please. We also, yeah, we also had a couple of cases, uh, two from what I recall. And, and it was the same. It was 2006, and it was the same feeling of this patient had NSF for a few months before we realized it was NSF. You know, it was like, it, it was uh, described like a sclero-mixedema. That's the face, first case report from 98 in Lancet. And it seemed like, you know, scleroderma-like skin. And the same thing happened. We stopped using Gado and it seemed to go away. And, and people stumbled through what was the etiology. The, the person who actually described and made the connection was uh, Thomas Grobner, an Austrian nephrologist, who realized that, uh, you know, it was gadolinium. Uh, all the patients that he saw who had NSF had gadolinium. It's a Jason um, paper in, um, in 2006. Initially, we thought it was maybe it was the linear uh, gadolinium and not the cyclic and then the uh, then they said hey let's look at all the gadolinium agents and then this classification came about so the uh, the ACR came up with this classification of class 1 2 and 3 so class 1 are the agents which are known to be bad uh, and have many case reports of uh, NSF uh, associated with them so the class 1 agents are the the maximum number of cases actually were with Omniscan, uh, that is gadodiamide, um, and and I think that's hardly used now because it was uh, it, it was the best selling MRI contrast I think, uh, but that was the one with uh, probably like eighty or ninety percent of the cases. Uh, another class one agent is uh, Magnavist or gadopentatate, uh, and a third one is gadovorsetamide or Optimark. So all those three are class one or group one rather. And uh, they are classified as high risk by the European Medical Agency as well as the FDA and the ACR. Uh, so all of us agree that the, they are the bad ones and we shouldn't use them. Uh, so that's not the focus of today's study. Uh, the other group at the other end is class 3. Uh, and class 3 are those uh, for which we don't have enough uh, data. Uh, so that's uh, multi-hands. Sorry, not multi hands. Um, Primo Vist or Gado Excitate, and um, um, is that any one? Maybe there's another one, but that's the one that said no is class three, um, and that's uh, we don't have enough data, so you know no one's talking about them. Also, what we are focused on is class two. So class two are the ones that are thought to be low risk, where they have been used in sufficient quantities that uh, the radiology community feels we have data about their reasonable data about their safety uh, to consider using these even at patients with high risk so we are talking about gado benate which is multi hands uh, we are talking about gado teridol which is pro hands uh, gado terate which is doterem and gado buterol that is gado vist so these are the class 2 agents which are thought to be at low risk um, according to the european medical agency as well as uh, they are the class 2 agents according to fda um, so the study today is a systematic review looking at... And, and yeah. does the FDA recognize these classes or is that just the ACR? So the ACR says that, but I don't know what the exact terminology that the FDA uses, 
but there is an FDA classification and, and that does say uh, that follows the ACR actually. Right, so here it is. Uh, so however, this is, so this the is FDA, 18 though, yeah. However, the FDA updated its gadolinium warning in 2010, specifying that three agents, gadopentatate, dimic, and then gadodiamide and gadoversetamide were responsible for most of the cases of NSF and therefore contraindicated. In the same update, the FDA stated that other GBCAs could be used cautiously under certain circumstances. And that was um, February 6, 2017 was when it was updated according to the footnote in the editorial. Right, right, exactly. And that's what we think, uh, I think we have used in our, um, I'm just looking at our guidelines from 2018 and that's what we used. That's a similar citation from FDA. Now the EMA has slightly different. So according to the European Medical Association, they call gadobenate as uh, medium risk. Um, though according to ACR and FDA, it is, you know, it's class two, it's group two, which is lower risk. So one of them is slightly discordant, uh, but overall, um, the uh, it's the other three uh, and four that we are looking today, which are low risk. So this is uh, uh, going back to the paper uh, that we are discussing today. It's a systematic review um, and it's a systematic review of the published literature. And we can come back to this later, uh, why this is uh, important. <laughs> so, so the, the, the systematic review is the um, it is to differentiate it from a narrative review. So it's a systematic meaning. Um, they said, hey, let's set out these criteria. Uh, these are the four uh, exclusion criteria and the five exclu inclusion criteria. And we'll search these six databases over this period of time. So uh, the, in theory, if you follow those inclusion exclusion criteria and that period of time, whether Matt does it at Duke or Swapnil does it at Ottawa, we should end up with the same papers. Um, in, in a narrative review, what can happen is that Joel sitting in Detroit may, may pick the papers that he knows uh, of his friends or, you know, colleagues, and he may not look extensively at the whole literature and you may miss out the papers, uh, you know, yeah, published. In a narrative in review, you start with your conclusion and then you find the papers that support it. It's very easy. I don't understand what <laughs> the confusion is. Also, if you don't have the, the, the numbers of patient of study to support a systematic review, you might need a narrative review. Is that correct? <laughs> that, that is absolutely correct. And with a systematic review, you have to follow the data, right? So you can't, um, um, you can't cherry pick the papers though. Um, uh, some people, there are ways to game everything, uh, but, but we need not go into that here. You know, you can set up your inclusion. If you know the literature well, you can set up your inclusion exclusion criteria very carefully. Um, so that's the systematic review part and the meta-analysis part is the quantitative synthesis, right? So let's say you have seven papers, you can just describe those seven papers without, you know, pooling the data together. So when people do a meta-analysis, it's like they take the data points from the individual studies and put them together and come out with some summary number, you know, saying the relative, the overall uh, summary relative risk is, you know, 2.8 or 5% or difference or whatever. So if they give that number to you, um, synthesizing, quantitatively synthesizing the literature, that's a meta-analysis. So uh, you, you should not do a meta-analysis without doing a systematic review. But sometimes you will do a systematic review and say that, hmm, you know, I can't really pull this data together into a meta-analysis. Does that make sense? Locked in. That's great. Thank you. Awesome. I fell um, asleep right after that. <laughs> 
systematic review. Right after sick and tired. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, uh, you know, I heard Matt, uh, I, I had to go for a swim. <laughs> I argued that maybe uh, you know, in, in uh, no basic science, uh, basic science studies, you should do a systematic review. Knockout, uh, mouse. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, uh, we saw that a review article. That's a systematic review in basic science. Yeah, yeah, we should do that. Let me know. Okay. <laughs> so, so in this case, they said, hey, let's uh, do a systematic review, specifically looking at group two. Um, so that's gadobenate, gadobuterol, gadoterate, or gadoteridol. So the four agents we are talking about. Uh, are there but, group three agents? There are group three agents. Uh, uh, and group three agents are those where we don't know. Um, where the usage is so low that, you know, we are not sure whether they're bad or not. Uh, it's it's thought that they are probably safe, but we don't have enough data. Uh, they're so sort of the unknown I, unknowns. I just want to interrupt the group and just say, like, you know, what are the MRI studies that you need gadolinium for? Yeah. Um, so Absolute need. Exactly. So my sense always had been that it's the it's the neurological studies, right, where you need to look at the brain uh, or the spinal cord. We're talking about somebody that might have a brain tumor. Uh, that that was my sense, or, or or cancer, right? Some some odd cancer where you need uh, the tumor to light up. Clinically, I get pushed by the neurosurgeons when they want to look at the spine. They're always looking for paraspinal abscesses. They push hard to get a gadolinium study there. Uh, but but during the chat, as well as remember, we did this uh, at Nef Madness last year. Um, I I was pushing uh, Saurabh Jha, uh, Rogue Rad about it, and he was like, "It's really um, liver where it makes a big difference." It seems. Uh, when you're trying to look at some liver lesions. And, and in his point of view, there are many techniques um, where, you know, there are algorithms and time of flight and phase, whatever, that you can get a lot of information without GADO. Um, again, he's an opinionated guy. So he says that, you know, it's, it's very rare that you absolutely must use GADO. So he says it's... Uh, it's in the uh, show notes, I'll drop a paper that I found uh, published just uh, last year um, titled Diagnostic Value of Alternative Techniques to Gadolinium-Based Contrast Agents. Mm -hmm. And what does this paper say? Well, I mean, it just goes over all the different ones and gives... That's code for he didn't read it. He didn't. I mean, <laughs> hey, hey, I have looked at the abstract, okay? Uh, it goes over each of the studies and talks about their limitations, talks about time of flight, it talks about some newer techniques. Uh, interestingly enough, it does not go into the iron. And I also pulled a paper up about iron enhancement, which we do a lot. Mm -hmm. um, With that ferromoxitols out there using yeah. it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I mean, I guess what I want to do is not just completely focus on uh, gadolinium because there are other ways to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and, and that was the point that I think Rogue was saying is that it's uh, using gado is sort of a lazy solution. So if you are creative, you can get a lot of information without using GADO. It's, it's, it's the very rare situation that you absolutely must use GADO. Um, if I could go on. Uh, so they looked at the group two agents and they were looking for studies that had patients with stage four or five. So like Joel was saying, it's um, in stage three, there is little doubt uh, that GADO is harmful uh, in terms of causing nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Which we why not stage three. Stage three is, is stage three is fine, is what I'm saying. Stage three is fine. Stage exactly. three is fine. Um, dialysis is where in terms of the NSF, in terms of NSF, right? Exactly. So in terms of NSF, stage three is fine. 
Um, dialysis is where most of the cases have come from, but there are a few scattered case reports even in uh, stage five non-dialysis and um, perhaps in stage four from whatever I could piece out the so-called stage four were mostly AKI. Uh, you know, so they were not right. really that's stage what I four. Yeah, yeah not, the, that's right. At that time, their GFR may have been zero. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. But but people mentioned the creatinine, so it seems like they are stage four, right? If you if you look that at that creatinine, but really, I I suspect they were not uh, stage four. Anyways, because we know that gadolinium um, clearance is affected by the GFR, it, it at that time it was a reasonable uh, supposition to restrict to stage four. So they thought, hey, let's look at the patients who were either stage four or stage five and who received uh, group two GBCAs and let's see how many of them developed um, NSF. So they're looking at the literature for case series and cohort studies, uh, not just case reports, because uh, what they're trying to estimate here is the incidence of NSF. So if you have one case report where, you know, someone got gadolinium and they got NSF, you don't have a denominator. Um, in this in this situation, you need a denominator. So they're looking for larger uh, studies. So basically cohort studies, and mostly they ended up with retrospective uh, chart studies. Um, and the last thing is uh, what they were specifically looking for was unconfounded uh, cases. Um, so the problem often is, and as, as, as Joel was mentioning, is that patients in that pre-2006, uh, GADO was thought to be so safe uh, that all our patients were getting GADO, right? Uh, it was being used right, left, and center. A fistulogram, gadolinium. And it wasn't one particular gadolinium. They were getting different GADO dyes. Um, so then attribution becomes a, 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 a difficult, right? If, if they got GADO deamide and they got GADO butyrol, then and they got someone got NSF, how do you say which agent was to blame? So that is a confounded case. Um, so uh, what they're looking for here is an unconfounded case where they, where a patient only got one specific type of GADO, whether it's one exposure or multiple exposures, but it's one specific type uh, and, and whether they developed um, GADO, uh, sorry, NSF uh, afterwards. And the important thing here is even if the exposure was years ago, they still counted it. Like there was no expiration date on that. You know, they could have gotten the initial type 1 get, uh, GBCA in 2002, got another dose in 2015 and got, get, and got NSF a month after that second dose, and it's still a confounded case. Is that right? That's absolutely right. That's because, right. Do you believe because, anyone's still listening? Are they waiting for the result? All right, keep going. <laughs> People are on the edge of their seat. <laughs> I have the results, everyone, and it'll be coming soon. It will be coming. Um, but the the uh, and what Joel was talking about the time period is 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 important because uh, there are some cases reported even now of patients who got gadolinium like five years ago and and nothing since. So it, it sometimes you know there are patients who do develop who developed NSF within weeks, uh, but most of the times the latency is like months uh, and often years, uh, which of course is partly because it is not recognized in time. Uh, but it just takes right. uh, it takes a long time. So there are many factors that play into it. That's why you can't say that if someone got one GADO two months ago and another GADO two years ago, which GADO do we blame? We really don't know. Okay, um, so I, but let's just let's adjudicate this. Do you think this is a kosher 
decision? I, I, think, uh, I, I it's a clean decision. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that there are some problems with it. It's going to eliminate some of your cases, which is particularly problematic when you say you have no cases. I'm not trying to steal your thunder, Matt, but that's the truth. There were well, no wait cases. a second now. We, <laughs> this, we're going to treat this like Pexivus, okay? Let the people wait. <laughs> if you look up patience in the dictionary, it's a picture of Pexivus. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry to blow you, to blow that and make people not wait, but that becomes problematic, right? I mean, it's you've you because of, you have no cases and you've just lopped off presumably a lot of cases. Nah, I'm not sure. Yeah. It does seem clean, though. I agree. Yeah, it, yeah it, is, it is clean. Exactly. It is clean. Um, the other thing is uh, <clears throat> they, they restricted themselves to published studies, right? So they are not looking at um, the FDA data. Um, you may know there is an FDA adverse uh, events reporting system where, you know, I can go in and say, hey, I saw a patient and uh, they had gadolinium and they got NSF. And, and, and I think it's, it's uh, so there is, it's not, it's not verified. Um, and it doesn't have a denominator. It's the same problem with the case reports. Exactly. There is no denominator with that. Um, so those, those cases are not uh, included in this. Um, the, the rest of the methodology is pretty straightforward. When you do a systematic review, you do everything in duplicate. Uh, so you're not relying on one person. So, you know, mm -hmm. let's say Joel and I are doing the systematic review. It seems unlikely. <laughs> uh, so let's say Matt and I are doing a systematic review. That's even more unlikely. <laughs> <I'll take> it. <laughs> it's going to be on, uh, you know, the, the color of fur on the mouse. Does it make a um, and then then uh, uh, there's a third person. Like, so if Matt and I disagree about whether, hey, this study should be included or not, then we sit down and, you know, go over the study together or we get Joel to Rock, paper, paper, scissors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, That's the meta-analysis part. Do, do you want to talk about no, that? Is the rock is their skin. The paper is what you publish at the end. And the, scissor, and the scissors is, I don't know, never mind, gone. Move along. That was, that was not good. <laughs> Are we ready for the results? Wait, you already told No, we're not. I, I want to. Uh, so, Got it. So, so Go the on. last thing, the last thing. So there are a couple of things. One thing is like they did the analysis. So they have to pull this together. Um, and they looked at, uh, so all they say, and I'm going to read out, and I, and I honestly wish they had given more details. They say the principal summary measure is the pooled incidence of NSF and the associated upper bound of the 95% confidence interval in patients with stage four or five receiving group two GBCA. And of course, then they do, did sub analysis to look at each individual agent. Um, so they, even here, they're saying an upper bound, right? They don't say upper and lower bound. So the assumption here is that it's going to be zero. So let's say the risk was going to be 4%, uh, then you know the 95% confidence interval would be say 2 to 6%. So the fact that even before they do the analysis, they say it's going to only, we are going to look at an upper bound sort of gives things away. Uh, sorry, Matt, uh, that you know the lower bound is zero uh, because they have zero cases. And they don't say anything about how they did this. Uh, and there are meta-analytic techniques when you have zero events. How do you, you know, how do you come up with 95% confidence intervals? I don't know how they did it. Um, there are, you know, three, four different methods of doing this. I don't I know. Hope you're not looking at me to answer that question. No, no, no. And they just don't give the answer. You know, I, I know of some methods, but I don't know what method they used. It doesn't matter much, but it would just have been nice. I mean, to see uh, confidence intervals just with w upper bound is something I've never seen before. It's weird. And, and it's, it takes me a while to understand. It's like, first off, why, are this, why is this a bar graph? 
And then I'm thinking, okay, it's not. Okay, well, what is it exactly? But so, yeah, are we ready to get to the results? Or are we still going to talk about something? Please get us to the results. All, all yours. Is it the figure one? Is that what we start with here? Is there a supplementary figure that I'm missing? That's the figure one. The figure one okay, is the right consort one. diagram, the flow diagram. So we start. Yeah. Uh, figure one looks at sort of all the studies they looked at. It was 2,700 citations after duplicates were removed in EndNote. I hate it when I have duplicates in EndNote. Sometimes triplicates, quadruplicates. Uh, and even after they're removed, you find some more. Do you still find more? Yeah. Uh, and then after that, they, um, then they had 2,638 were excluded during the title and abstract review. They didn't meet the criteria there. That's an incredible amount of work. That just sounds, just reading the title and abstract to 2,630, 27, it's going to be 2,700 articles. Oh my God. Well, but most of them is, is probably not much reading was required. Like maybe it didn't have an abstract mm-hmm. and the title uh, just had nothing to do with what they were looking at. It's still so, a lot. So, so it's, it's, it's not uncommon, um, especially in a um, study like this. So uh, if you do uh, a study which is including uh, randomized trials, then your search is pretty good because uh, uh, the search can, you know, pick up only trials. Um, so the, I'm doing one where, you know, we we'll, we have maybe 80 that we are including and the search started off with about 900. Uh, so you look at that ratio, that's way better than this. But that's not uncommon when you're looking at trials versus observational studies. And it's kind of healthy. You know, I, I'm sure if they got 2,700, it means it was a very sensitive search and they didn't miss much. So 62 they're left with, starting out with 2,700, 62 left. And then they excluded 46 more, and those were excluded for the population did not have the CKD stage four or five. There was 11 studies excluded for that. And then the second most likely was that the outcome was not related to NSF. And there's a few other exclusions for there's no extractable data. The uh, intervention was not related to the group two gadolinium agents. And some were just narrative reviews or editorials. And interestingly enough, they did find one retracted study. And that left with 16 um, studies that were included for the assessment. So if you look through the studies, uh, they ranged from retrospective cohort studies to prospective cohort studies. Majority of them were retrospective cohort studies. They were in various countries, most likely in the United States, but also in Sweden, France, Austria, and a few were in multiple um, areas. There's also in Japan and the United Kingdom. And I think one of the limitations is that the study years ranged from one to two years in some cases, and then others were up to seven years. And I think that's where the upper bound confidence interval uh, sort of gets mm-hmm. large when you have a study that only um, followed patients for one to two years. Um, and the number of patients that were in the studies uh, ranged from, looks like in about the 300 range. Um, and there was actually one, does that say 35,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some pretty big studies and some very small studies, 2,000, 200, 35,000. And so you can imagine the one with the 35,000 gets a pretty small, um, gets a smaller confidence, upper bound confidence interval. So figure two is where we're talking about this upper bound 95% confidence interval that starts at zero for all of the studies. And the very bottom is the pooled result, which basically barely leaves zero. And then you have a few studies, the top one, 
and then the one from Japan that reach all the way out to 50%. And if you look at both of those studies, they're uh, a year and, and or one year and two years in duration. Right. So if I can interrupt. Um, sure. I was trying to figure out why the sample size. So in, in figure two, the last column is the sample size, right? So the Japanese study has a sample size uh, that Tsushima has a sample size of 3,337. So you may wonder why a, sam- a study with that sample size should have a confidence interval that goes all the way up. But then if you look at table two, let's go down to Tsushima. The second column is the number of pe- people exposed. It's only five. So from what I can see, um, a lot most of the patients in that Tsushima studies were not stage four or five CKD. Only five patients were stage four or five CKD. Or they didn't get, a, or they didn't get a, J, uh, a group two GBCA. They may exactly. have gotten a group one. Exactly, or they didn't get a group uh, uh, two uh, GBCA. So only five patients in that. That five patient, five patients was the effective sample size uh, that they included in the systematic. Okay, I think it would have been in that very first table one. It would have been nice to put that on there as well, exactly. not just the right, total. right. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, the number we wanted. Yeah, it is confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, your N should be consistent from table to table. So what's the total number of patients that had exposure? If you look down here, you have 601, 85, 280, 1400. So the Bruce study in 2016 looks like one of the largest. Mm -hmm. And you see that pretty much drives the entire result. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the Martin 2010 study, which had uh, almost 800. So those two studies pretty much account for majority of the patients. Well, and young in 2019 with 587. Yeah, right. So we go to figure three, uh, which basically breaks down the different types of gadolinium and then does the same analysis with uh, the upper bound of 95% confidence interval starting at zero. And this gets the incidence up uh, anywhere f- uh, up to 1.6% for the gadoteridol. And then the second highest one is gadobuterol, and then uh, gadoteritate, and then the pooled analysis is, uh, is somewhere in the point, less than 0.1. Yeah, looks like less than 0.1. Point, point 0.07 or something. But I, th- I think would also be nice to but, have... But I think we need to, the big picture here is they went through 16 studies and they didn't find a single case of NSF. Right, we, we're talking about confidence intervals, but let's, hit, let's make sure that's... But Understood. that's the other thing we have to also recognize is it's, it's uh, uh, some of these cohorts only followed patients for a few years. So in the cohorts and they, that they looked at the patients, the limited number of years, there were no cases. So I think that's something we should also at least say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they had nearly 5,000 administrations of gadolinium, at least two years of follow-up and zero cases, no cases of NSF. But that's where also, I mean, we definitely know that this can happen. It's a rare event. Looking for other alternatives, is that still something that we should be doing? Say, hey, you know, I know that you want to do this study. You're coming to me to ask if it's okay. Can you first search to find another alternative agent that you can give to get the information that will help this patient? Is it absolutely necessary? Because, you know, I've definitely seen it and it has – you know, it is debilitating and, and a scary thing to see. Here's a question that I have. Every other meta-analysis I've seen talks about heterogeneity, 
and they even measure it, right? And they also talk about publication bias, and there's always a funnel plot. Where's my funnel plot? Where's my heterogeneity? I don't even know what heterogeneity is, but I know to look for it. Exactly. And, and that's sort of the stuff that I was looking for and I can't find. Um, and I'm sure if they have done a pool analysis, it should show up. Now, in this case, of course, it's all zero, right? Uh, for heterogeneity, you need some scatter. So they would all line up in, in the zero. Okay, so, so, okay. You so it may not be, public- that may be not be instructive. Now, what about the, the funnel plot looking for publication bias? Uh, and again, it's all zero events. So uh, yeah. may not show up there either. The tools that we're used to looking to assess a meta-analysis don't apply when you don't have any cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. Okay. Yeah. I uh, guess. <laughs> the only thing which is there in the supplement of interest is this uh, E-Table 1, which is risk of bias assessment. Uh, so that's like a quality assessment, right? You look at the individual studies and see you see if they are low quality or high quality. And most of the, if you look at E-Table 1 in the supplement, uh, the risk of bias is, um, uh, is is acceptable. It's mostly green except for 3A. And 3A is uh, where the outcome assessors blind to the intervention. Uh, so they were not blinded uh, because I'm sure they knew the patient had uh, received gadolinium. Uh, but I don't think that, you know, that's in fact, in that doesn't go against the study. If if people knew they had gadolinium, I think we are even more likely to find a diagnosis. So um, the quality assessment is, is pretty decent. Uh, it's suggesting these are good quality studies. The data extraction had to be difficult. When you look at one of them, there's 35,000 patients and they had 65 exposures. Yeah. So going through... What sixteen studies, and then trying to find the. I mean, some of these were large, very large trials. Mm-hmm. They only ended up in a few exposures, but then you had a few that did have you know, fourteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes you have to contact the authors to find out, hey, which one, you know, how many had what. So right. it's a, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds, Matt. Well, I, I said it looks challenging. I mean, I, I, I the real reason I don't like analyses because it's too hard to do. And uh, but this isn't. It, it's a, it's. I think a needed study. And I'm 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 not saying I'm all for gadolinium, but if it is absolutely necessary and you need to use it, then I think it's. Uh, Sorry about that. An option. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so Joel, you missed the supplement, and there's a risk of bias table and. It's pretty good. The studies okay. were at, uh, at poor risk of bias. The, the, so we are discussing about whether we should give GADO and whether we should not. Do you guys talk about the fact that a lot of these studies, are, uh, much of the observation time is after 2006, and that means that uh, nephrologists or radiologists and nephrologists will be taking lots of steps to prevent gadolinium toxicity, and whether that's dialyzing people after the exposure, using tiny doses. And what we're really seeing is we may be seeing safety because of those interventions and not safety because these agents are safe. We didn't talk about that. That's a good point. And that's, I think, the point that the fellow who wrote the summary, uh, Naveen, Naveen Trehan? Yeah, Naveen Trehan is my fellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he made that point in the summary also, and he brought that up uh, in the discussion. And, and it's absolutely right. It may be that the efforts we have made uh, are why we don't see cases. So we shouldn't stop doing those things. 
that I, I think that's exactly right. I think that you know, the, to me, this is one of the great successes. I mean, it's weird to say that's a success, but we had this rare complication. We were able to eventually recognize what caused it, stop that that interve- the the, the cause, stop doing that, and really, this disease largely disappeared. I haven't seen a case since those that initial bolus of five in two thousand six. Mm-hmm. I know Matt said you've seen a case recently, right? We have seen a case recently, and I do recall the cases back in 2003 to 2004 where we did not know what it was yep. linked to. And I distinctly remember, because I was a resident at the time, sitting through, I mean, it seems like every month there was a talk about it. It almost feels like it was the um, checkpoint inhibitors of the early 2000s, you know, where you see a checkpoint inhibitor uh, study every few days now, same, same thing. And, uh, it was EPO. It was, uh, right. Metabolic acidosis. Yeah. There's a lot of, lot of different causes. That's right. And, uh, what, tell so, me about yeah. the, tell me about the case that you had recently. What was the story? Yeah, there? It was not my case. So that's, I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I, Michelle I talked about a pedi- There was a pediatric case report recently about a, a little kid who got gadolinium recently and developed NSF. I think it's still challenging. I mean, that's why even back then, it's it, you know, it, the exposure was oftentimes not linked temporarily. Yep, it was remote. Yep. Uh, and then sometimes you had to dig to find if it actually occurred. And then there was there's always sort of a potential of it being um, calciphylaxis. And then if you do a biopsy and there's no calcium, and then it's like, and that was always a struggle as well. Uh, so I think um, it might now, when you look back at it, sound like it was an easy slam dunk, but we were really scratching our heads for several years. 100%. 100%. But I do agree. It, this was a, it's an amazing thing to turn around. And I think the FDA had to be very strong about it because there's no other way to stop how much catalinium was being given back then. Yeah. Yeah. It it was being used like you know left right left and center. So I think the the uh, change that happened was um, necessary. But at the same time, I think there is so much pain now. You know, we we are not using GADO at all, and you kind of wonder if if uh, we are missing some diagnosis and the whole nuisance about sometimes patient will not get GADO and then they re- need a repeat procedure with the GADO. Um, and all those phone calls uh, about hey should we give GADO should we not give GADO. Uh, procedures are delayed, uh, imaging tests are delayed, all that stuff can be avoided. Well, you know, if it's someone that has a, a brain malignancy and they need to have surgery and that, you know, you need to look at the patient, look at the issue that's currently in front of you and make a determination about whether or not this is going to help them. And if it's uh, a cavalier move to give gadolinium to look at something that there's a very low probability, then that's maybe a case where you can attempt another technique. The, the other concern that I have about the study is by grouping together stage four, stage five, and CK and dialysis, maybe all this safety data is on CKD stage four. And maybe they have almost no patients that are exposed that are dialysis patients. They don't provide those numbers. Right? I, I mean would, that, that would right? be important to do. But that. isn't that a column you want to see? You want to see, hey, I how many of these so. are stage four? How many of these five thousand people? How many of them were on dialysis? Was it six? Or is it a- that's exactly what we like to see is, you know, like how, like look at table one and table two and try and, and we had to extract out sort of the, the key findings, like how many, just how the end, total, right, just the, right, just the end was kind it. of obscured. That's right. And then, and it could be a nice table to say, you know, here are the patients that are on dialysis 
And well, I guess in this case, like if it's two, I mean, not they had no cases, but if it's only two patients or 10 or whatever it is, uh, we'd like to know that. Right. The decision that the FDA made in 2006 to say, hey, we're going to give a blanket statement. We don't want anybody with advanced CKD is now giving them cover to kind of demonstrate safety. And maybe most, and I suspect, I really do suspect that most of these 5,000 patients are going to be stage four and five, not on dialysis. Because I think it's hard to get, I mean, I think people are reluctant to give GAD to dialysis patients. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're going to find 5,000 of them. Yep, that's absolutely true. Now, the other things, of course, are uh, there is a concern about uh, GAD accumulation causing other problems. Uh, and we don't want to go down that path. Uh, but, but you know, I do sympathize with the point of view that uh, there are many people like uh, uh, Brent Wagner has made many times is that uh, putting toxic, potentially toxic chemicals in our body is not always a good idea. Um, and uh, there are downstream consequences that we just don't know about. Um, that uh, And this has nothing to do with dialysis necessarily. Uh, so let's not use gadolinium unless we really need to use it. Just like uh, baclofen or PPIs. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I think that's what, I think that there was a period of time where we thought there were a lot of things that were safe and uh, it appears that that's not the case. Uh, so you'd be very skeptical, uh, especially when it starts to become um, just give it, give it, give it. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do we people, what do we even think about um, doing dialysis? Do you guys have protocols for doing dialysis? And, you know, what if um, do you do daily dialysis? What if someone's a someone dialysis patient? Yeah. I mean, the honest truth is I have not seen gadolinium given to someone on dialysis in a long time. Joel? I do see that uh, not often, but I would say every other month, every month or so, we'll get pushed to do it, uh, worried about somebody with back pain. It's usually back pain looking for a paraspinal abscess is where I run into it recurrently. And we do uh, dialysis for three consecutive days. Kind of that protocol that was published gets 97% of the gadolinium out. Yeah. So we, um, we also do dialysis. We, again, it's not all the time, but almost every other month or so, uh, we have a situation, um, and we do, rather than do dialysis after GADO, we arrange the MRI before the dialysis uh, to make it convenient uh, for dialysis to be done within, like they have like three hours. So we do it after three hours, but we don't do daily dialysis. We just do that first dialysis very soon. I, I'm honestly not sure, you know, whether that time interval matters, whether the three dialysis are in 72 hours or they are in a week you're going to get most of the gadolinium out. And I'm not, I'm honestly not convinced it makes a difference. Um, so if you looked at the original, really uh, first papers before Grobner showed its gadolinium, the, the risk factors that had come up was uh, metabolic acidosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theory was that in an acidemic milieu, more of that gadolinium can dissociate. Ionize, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can dissociate. So, uh, guess when someone's most acidemic is just before dialysis. <laughs> so uh, by what we are doing is, you know, we we give the GADO before their dialysis. So it's often like 44 hours after their last dialysis, which is when they're going to be most acidemic. Um, so I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. Uh, you could dialyze uh, the day before the GADO though. Right, right, exactly. The day so, of and after. And, and after. Um, and and uh, there are a few cases uh, reported so after this study, will you still do that, Joel? 
Yeah, I, I they still have of, to have dialysis after. I mean, yeah, so I kind of feel like this. I, here's what I think. I think this study is going to relax my feeling on non-dialysis stage four and stage five. I think I'm pretty convinced that these type two agents are all right. I don't think I'm going to change my behavior for dialysis patients. I'm still going to dissuade that, try to avoid it as much as possible. And if I run into it, I'm probably going to dialyze them three days in a row. I kind of feel like the downside there. That Here's what I feel like. That if I ever had a patient develop another case of NSF, and I didn't do it. I'd be like, what, what, what was the downside? Why don't, I, why don't I just provide that additional dialysis? I'd feel guilty if I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I think the paper also, as we already mentioned, does not tell us how many patients were on dialysis. And that's a problem because that's why they might have had dialysis yeah. three times in a row. Mm-hmm. That's and right. Sure yeah, that's right. Did. Some so, of them, for sure. Because I, I think that's, a, I think my position about dialysis three times, I heard a lot of people echoing that. I don't think that's so uncommon. Yeah, yeah. I think many places have that kind of protocol. Um, but what about PD? What, what if your patient is on peritoneal dialysis? The PD is very bad at removing gadolinium, right? You need to do uh, like a cycler. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd put in a temporary dialysis catheter and I'd put them on hemo. Oh, really? You do that? i do that, yeah. So there, there, you know, I would push back and say, you know, that risk is perhaps greater, right? Like he, perhaps, doing, an extra yeah. hemo, doing an extra hemodialysis doesn't do much. In a, in a PD patient, a, you're, you know, you're putting a temporary dialysis line with the cost and the uh, uh, morbidity related to that. And, and doing hemo is going to perhaps be bad for the residual kidney function. Uh, yep. Yeah. No, that, there's a real cost to it. I agree. Yeah. Uh, some people say that if it's a stage four or stage five um, um, non-dialysis uh, CKD, they should be started on dialysis. And I think this study is... Uh, will put a stop to that. Um, I'm pretty confident about that, that I'll be... I I can push back if anyone says, hey, you know, this patient is close to dialysis, just put them on and I'll say no. Um, I think the risk is low. Have you done that before? No, no, but we have we've had some uh, discussion about that. Um, and, and usually what we try is just, you know, hold on uh, and do the imaging later on or, or right. do a plane. And that's the setting which is the worst, right? Because even if you believe contrast nephropathy is a myth, um, if the GFR is, you know, seven or eight and they're not yet on dialysis, you are going to be worried that contrast is going to tip them over. Um, I was just saying, Joel, that the kind of patient with a GFR less than 15, uh, but not on dialysis is a tricky uh, situation where contrast is also probably bad, uh, whether you believe uh, it causes uh, AKI or not. And in in, in those kind of patients, I'm pretty sure, um, you know, the, the risk is high with iodinated contrast. Let's let's not open up that can of worms in this podcast. <laughs> no, really, I, I think that, that that that's not going to go someplace that will have any resolution in, in any time short. Yeah, but that's, uh, those are the patients that are really the where your hands are tied, right? So I'll be I'll be happy that with this study is that I'll be uh, I think uh, I'll be more confident giving them gadolinium. Um, they're not on dialysis. I'm still going to try to hold off best I can. I, I, and I agree. I, I agree. We should try not to, but you know, if push comes to shove, they have a brain tumor or what have you, then I'll say fine. I think it's like the hardest part for me is they'll, they'll, they'll come to you and ask and, and then, you know, you, you turn it back around and say, Hey, have you considered alternate ways to image? And oftentimes it comes to, well, let's try something. We can do something else. And then yeah. 
the, the, yes. whole, the whole thing's gone. So many times you get off the hook. I completely agree. And the argument and the question is, when you do that, you feel like you've done something good, but does the patient get a substandard diagnostic procedure? And did the, is there a cost that we don't know about because yeah. they don't get the gadolinium? They don't get the right. They don't get the first choice imaging procedure. And I think we are not in a good position to know that. Right, cause well, I think that's the hard part is, you know, you can't even put in the word gadolinium into a search engine without getting stuff on nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. It's like almost impossible. So it's like I tried to do a little research on it and like I had to go through like 15 pages to get to uh, what I was looking for because it was filled with um, lawyers looking for people that had exposures. Mm-hmm. Okay, so rubber meets the road. Swapnil, how, is this, how does this study change how you're going to manage the gadolinium question? Um, it won't change what we actually do because, um, as I mentioned, the Canadian guidelines are pretty, I think they're pretty pragmatic, uh, saying that, hey, don't use gadolinium unless you need to. And when you ne- if you need to really use it, go ahead and use a group 2 agent. I think it'll still give me greater confidence now. Um, we were sort of going out on a limb when we made that decision. This is, uh, you know, now the decision backed by some uh, strong, stronger data published in JAMA Internal Medicine, right? And not the Canadian Journal of Kidney Health and Disease. Matt, how's this going to change what you do? I don't think it will change much, I, but I do think, I think it's an interesting study. There's a, there's a lot of questions I have about the dialysis patients that make me a little bit cautious to... Uh, still give it to patients on dialysis. I think if someone has stage four CKD, I would still push hard to try a different agent. But if uh, there's a firm belief that this scan with gadolinium would alter the person's life, then I don't think I would have any other option but to give it. Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of the same way. I think with dialysis, it doesn't change anything I do until I see until I see a data that shows me the dialysis numbers. But I think my feeling, I'm really softened on CKD stage four and five, not on dialysis. I think this is pretty reassuring data. And, and I was kind of gatto crazy in those advanced CKD stage fives before. So I'm, uh, I think in that way, it changes how I'm going to handle those patients that are not on dialysis. Okay. I think we're done with gadolinium. Uh, yeah, we're going to do our, we're gonna do our uh, tubular secretions. Got it. Um, Matt, you got one? I actually have one this time. <laughs> so uh, just hold on, everybody. Hold on, hold on. There's no poison ivy here. Um, so You're itching I, to tell us something. Yeah, I'm itching to tell you something. Uh, <laughs> nothing like that. So uh, I am in the process of writing a review article with uh, Daniel Edmonston, who's a junior faculty um, at Duke. And he introduced me to something called BioRender. And it's uh, maybe everyone else has already heard about it. This is new to me. It's BioRender.com. Uh, you can pay uh, a small fee, just like um, Icon Finder. And it has just an amazing catalog of images to make figures for papers. So it has like nice nephrons and kidneys and molecules. And you should check it out, www.BioRender.com. I've been playing around with it. Got the, uh, I have the free version. He has the paid version. I'm just going to see how often I'll use it. Um, so that's my uh, tubular secretion. I just heard about it today. Uh, uh, Matt Luther was saying, hey, have you heard about BioRender? So I, this is 
twice in a day that I'm here. Oh, nice. Yeah. I should, I guess I should check it out. Definitely, um, definitely check it out. I mean, I think for the uh, basic science visual abstracts, this is a perfect thing to use. Do you want me to go next? I'm, I'm just, I'm just looking at, I'm just looking at bio render now and it I, looks, you like it, don't you? Are you I into am, bio render? I am intrigued. Have you look at that little virus infecting a cell? I'm looking at, I'm looking at, they have I'm a at whole the, coronavirus replication cycle. I mean, I like I, some of the undergrads went or in my room, my office day. And oh my God, they have one, two, three, four different podocytes. And they were, everyone just started clapping. It was like we had just discovered something that was going to be life altering. Because we're also writing another review article in the lab. And I told them, I said, if you guys spend all day making figures and not writing the paper, we're going to have a problem. Oh, it's a beautiful glomerulus. Oh, my God. And it comes in various colors. Oh, this I is. Mean, it is a life-changing. Th- I mean, instead of reading the paper, oh, just going to make a figure all day. Oh, my God. Look at the molecules. <laughs> the photocytes. The so photocytes pretty. are pretty good. Oh. Okay. I am very excited. Sign up for free. Oh, this oh, is, is good. I, I see this on a CJSON visual abstract coming yeah, soon. I suspect so. Okay. Okay. Good, good, good find. Good tubular secretion. Ooh, Matt. Finally. Finally. So, yeah, finally is right. Swapna, what do you got for us? I'm looking at MRI machine in the bio render, and there's a, the second hit is a mouse MRI machine. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> mouse MRI. Oh, my gosh. I thought you said gadolinium, what happens? Yeah, there's no, no nothing for gadolinium. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Antibody? Oh, mouse. Oh, look at those mice. This episode is brought to you by BioRender. <laughs> yeah, BioRender, if you guys are looking for a sponsor, to sponsor us, we're happy. Yeah. Okay. Swap, what do you got? Oh, Besides an uh, MRI machine for a mouse. <laughs> I think he's BioRender, it's his too. <laughs> no, uh, so I, I uh, so my tubular uh, secretion is a bit more uh, serious. Uh, uh, on the weekend, you know, as always, I got into a few arguments. Uh, but <laughs> academic uh, debates, <laughs> debates, academic debates, and discourse. Um, so this, uh, there was a tweet from the Heart uh, Org. It's like Medscape, wow. uh, and they said, "Hey, this week in cardiology podcast with." John Mandrola, um, and they say, expert. hey, they say expert John Mandrola. Uh, so I'm not going to name, uh, but there's another cardiologist who said, who co-tweeted that tweet uh, and said, hey, the heart, I don't really mean this in a trolling way, but why do you say with expert Dr. Jan, John Mandrola in your byline? It's a strange statement. The fact that you put in there seems to suggest that you need to tell us that he really is an expert or that we should regard him to be an expert. Uh, so this this cardiologist who tweeted, he is. Uh, let me tell you. Uh, I won't tell you his name. You can look it up yourself. But he he went to Princeton. He went to Harvard. He went to UCSF. Uh, he works at Columbia. He's one of the America's top doctors. He's rated New York Magazine's best doctors. I don't know why. You know, somebody calling another doctor an expert riles this person up. It's just unpleasant. Don't do this. <laughs> Don't do this. Don't do it. Well, this brings up. Uh, this was um, uh, who? What, there was a. There was another. The Kardashian index came back again. Oh, Robert this Kenneth. week. 
Yeah, your guy from Duke. Hey, that's he's gone now. He left. Went to Google. Who did it? Yeah, he's hundred percent Google now. And and what 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 was his deal? He was getting. I don't he, know. He basically so, said so, that just because you have a lot of followers doesn't mean you know anything. Yeah, and it means that oh, don't don't go criticize other studies. Go and write and do the studies. Well, he kind of he he brought up what is that FDR's quote about the man in the arena? Yes, and that was completely unrelated. I don't know why he dragged that in. But it's it, it, the implication was if you are not a researcher, shut up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's just come on. Yeah, and it was published in some journal called Jack Case Reports. I don't well, know. Not what, Jack. The, it was Jack Case Reports. Case Reports, and I don't know what Kardashian Index <clears throat> has to do with Jack Case Reports. Right. Yeah, uh, Brian Vardabedian has a nice editorial about it uh, this week uh, about uh, the Kardashian Index. I thought he was he was thoughtful mm-hmm. in the way that we can expect Brian to be. Um, my uh, tubular secretion uh, just today. I locked down four hours for Neff Madness for my fellowship. We're not, in the past, we've done one hour. Four hours. Wow. Well, because I'll tell you that? why. Because when we've done Neff Madness, when we have like an hour lecture, trying to get through 32 concepts in an hour, you're just racing. And nobody, it's not thoughtful at all. And, and a bunch of people did that. The, the Polish guys who won the best yeah, party. The party. They I think they did that week. over two days or a week, right? And they yeah. did it over a week. Yeah. So I, I reserved a bunch of time. And cause we're going to go, because I want to go through all the regions carefully and let the fellows really kind of explore what we're talking about. We spent a lot of time building these brackets, and I think it's a disservice to um, race through them. And uh, I'll extend and, mine to two hours. Uh, you know, two hours is four minutes per topic, which is, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And then people are late, and they're like, I don't forgot my password. You know, <laughs> it's so mm-hmm. hard to log in. There's a million things that are going to happen. You're, gonna, you're not going to get your time. So that's what I did today, and I'm nice. just telling people, reserve time for Neff Madness and consider not just an hour. You really want more than that. Matt recommends two hours. Kidney Boy says four hours. I think, uh, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but to trap anyone in a room for four hours is Well, no, is no, we're not, right. oh, no, we're not doing like four hours. Review. No, no. Are you doing no, two hours at a time? Two, no, we're doing one hour at a time. I got four oh. one-hour sessions. Wow, that's that's good. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm not going to do – you know, it's not like I'm making them watch The Irishman. Come on. <laughs> I, I got two hours this time, but I've got like a continuous two hours, which is okay. and, and, uh, But we really want to know what, what is your party going to be like? Oh, I'm not a party guy. Not a party guy. I'm not going to have a uh, uh, kidney shaped cake or anything like that. Uh, you, you're in, okay, you're in now you're going to guilt me into this. I'll make oh, you're in popsicles. Cake. There we go. Like, nice. No, we're not doing urine popsicles. That's terrible. Popsicle. Idea. <laughs> not doing urine popsicles. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, well, the, 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 there might be one remaining person on, so we need we need to really ramp this up for them. There might be one remaining one. Oh, so let's, no, no one's listening at this part of it. No, you don't think is, so. You can swear all you want, Matt. No one. What no, is the generalizability of that study we just we're talked not about? Gonna bleep it. We're not going to bleep it out. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. This has been a great. This has been a great one. I, I think it worked out pretty well with. Yeah. Just, well, I mean, it's a bummer that we were just the dudes, but you know. We'll try to bring the full filtrate in next time. Jenny and Samira, yeah, they're definitely missed. They're definitely missed. There was no placebo here, so we were able to escape yeah, without uh, without capsulology. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Um, I'll talk to you later. 
All right. Talk to everyone later. Sounds good. Bye.